169 prisoners are being brought for trial to this court in the city of London, the Old Bailey. Their finding of the Old Bailey car bomb that killed one man and caused 178 casualties. But I'm enormously grateful to the jury. Sensational developments from the phone hacking trial. The judge here. made his ruling today. Huntley shook and turned pale. The third IRA suspect to be acquitted of terrorist charges here in a year. The sentence of the court is one of life imprisonment. Would you please take the defendant downstairs? The Old Bailey is the home of British justice. Its walls have formed the theatre to our greatest national dramas. To Oscar Wilde, George Blake and Christine Keeler. To Sutcliffe, Huntley and Warboys. The IRA and Al-Qaeda. Through the rows of metal detectors, up a marble staircase, past statues of long forgotten judges, in a crowded wood panelled back room, all day long, a team of court reporters dart between hearings. They work to file the reports that go out to newspaper offices across the country. No transcripts exist in British courts. They are not televised. Without court reporters, justice is not only blind, it is mute. And there are vanishingly few court reporters left. Court News is the last specialist agency to operate from the Old Bailey. They've been here since 1985. In their vaults lie first-hand accounts of every major case of the age. I'm Gavin Haynes. In this series, we're going to be going inside British trials, through the eyes of those who see justice being done every single day. The Court News team. Well, you know, they're not letting Laura in now, guys. They're not letting you in. We're in the back of the Old Bailey, in the press room. It's magnificent and shabby. High vaulted ceilings, full of mismatched office chairs, often of an exceptional quality, despite the ravages of time. Green leather and dark wood. In the corner, a steel ladder is plastered with a label that reads, This belongs to the press room. Fuck off. The carpets are thick burgundy but bleached into yellow in parts. There's a pane in a vast wooden sash window in the corner that's completely cracked. The team said they've been asking the building maintenance staff about its repair for two or three years now. I'm Scott Wilford, the editor of Central News, also known as Court News UK. Scott is half of the duo who run Court News UK, also known as the Central News Agency. Him and another man, Guy Toyne, took it over in 1999. The press room where we work now, it was known as the Thorpe Suite. It was called the Thorpe Suite because of the Jeremy Thorpe case, the Liberal MP who uh, found himself on trial in the late 70s. I think it it involved some kind of blackmail and whatnot. But he was consulting his barristers in that room, apparently. It was known as the Thorpe Suite and it was given given over to the press um, a few years ago when they shut down the, the old press room in the lower ground room, which was a bit like a bomb shelter. And the the press had been moved down into that area in the 70s after the IRA bomb. So uh, they moved us back upstairs where we had um, some windows with some natural sunlight. So, yeah, can't complain. What was court reporting like back then or before? I mean, where does the story start for you with with court reporting and, and what's changed since the millennium? As a trainee... I wandered into the old Bailey press room in about, well, in the early 90s. In those days, there was probably about six 
you could believe this, in the old Bailey press room, which was down in the bowels of the building. There was probably about six micro agencies, little photo, photographic agencies. There was Press Association had two people there. Our company, Central, was pretty big then. I think there was probably about six reporters, maybe three other photo agencies. I think papers like The Telegraph, The Times, Sun had their own reporter down there. Nothing like that exists anymore. Today, they're the last proper court reporting agency left in the building. Scott and Guy are often described by the team as chalk and cheese. For his part, Scott is the careful one, an editor's editor, prone to grumbling, deep in the details. Guy is, well, cheese. Well, uh, I've been fired from various different jobs. Uh, I was fired from, I was a journalist working on a new, on a uh, entertainment's trade newspaper called Video Trade Weekly, which is uh, now long since defunct, probably because I wasn't working there any longer. I was fired there for being really rude to an industry executive from Metro Golden Mayor at a charity go-kart night. So I was basically, how can I say, uh, down at heel somewhat. And I actually first came into the orbit of central news when I looked at an advert in an old phone directory under news agencies and I actually having no job turned up for an interview Um, I didn't know that they were a court agency at the time and um, they gave me the job um, as a reporter and I worked there basically for several years I think at that time the it's difficult to explain to people who aren't really interested in, in this sort of thing. I guess everyone is fascinated by true crime to a certain extent. And obviously what you see at the Old Bailey is weirder and uh, stranger than anything uh, you'll see on the TV or in a cinema or whatever. I was endlessly fascinated by it and then I ended up working for the company, the original Central News Company, uh, for several years before I could sort of pull myself away and uh, leave the company. And I worked as a crime reporter on a newspaper, daily newspaper, for a couple of years. I think Guy Toyne came in. He'd, he'd been working as a reporter in the West Country, maybe done other jobs as well. Knew a lot more about the job than I did. <laughs> Um, I was still a bit of a coffee boy who was running out doing the errands, you know. The guy was already senior to me, so he was in there doing the courts uh, while I was still learning. Um, and what kind of a bloke was he? He was like a, you know, a character. He was already someone that maybe an acquired taste. Not everyone got on with Guy. I instantly did get on with him. He was never one to bite his lip and... Loved to uh, regale people about the cases he was covering. So, yeah, I learnt, I learnt from him just by listening to his ideas of how to report courts um, and just hanging around with him. He just explained to me the basic art of, of sitting in a court and getting the best line out. And then the opportunity came to buy the company from the previous owners. And that was, I think, 1999 which is a long time ago now, but it um, doesn't seem that long ago. And uh, we've been doing it ever since, to be quite honest with you. And how have you been doing it ever since? Well, in the, in the industry itself has changed absolutely completely over that time. It's a bit sad, really, because we have 
been just managing a decline. When we started, there was still a very strong regional newspaper industry. There was still a very strong local newspaper industry. And obviously uh, there are national newspapers with very, very large budgets indeed. And um, obviously we tried to sell the court copy news stories uh, from Central News to all of those people. And uh, we did it quite successfully for a while. We were certainly the, if you like, our revenue was largely supported by um, some of the big London local papers for several years. Uh, and then as they declined to the level they are now, which in my view, I don't think some of them are really newspapers at all. I don't know, really know what they are. I guess the agency has correspondingly uh, shrunk in size. I think at one point, I think we had something like 10 reporters. It was absolutely incredible. 10 reporters and two photographers plus a picture editor. So in a way, I guess you could say that we've done well to stay alive in such difficult circumstances. But we'll, we'll keep on trying until the uh, hand of the Grim Reaper uh, settles on the shoulder and lead us away, I guess. Um, we've got nothing else to do. The Central News Agency, aka Court News, makes its money by going deeper and longer into the court process than anyone else. They produce dense, detailed copy of the sort that can only ever come from being there, from spooling out shorthand as you follow hour after hour of bewigged cross-examination. Sitting in a court, however compelling, is a lonely experience. It requires a certain toleration of boredom. You might easily spend six hours and just hear a list of facts about the location of mobile phone masts. That's why few bother. In an internet age, it's easier to hire copy monkeys to pirate someone else's story. Just report up the headlines. For most media organisations, it's not worth the slog. But the only place to really find out about crime and justice as it is now is to sit in those courts. That's why court news is special. So often, they're the only people up in that press gallery. All that's kind of drained away. I mean, the local newspaper markets collapsed in terms of you know, knowing what people in the, from their locality are doing in the courts or from, a, from local politics. I think all this has fallen away, which is it's a real danger because it's, it's just a process of democracy. Today, I've come to ask Scott and Guy about a case that seemed to miss the media cycle. It's one that concluded only a few months ago, but it's a story with a long genesis in the system and more than one false ending. Tell me about Anthony Constantino. Well, Anthony Constantino became known as the real uh, Wolf of Wolf Street. Now, he basically pulled off this massive £70 million Ponzi Street where he ripped off people in investments. He's an interesting character, perhaps uh, one of those great dinosaurs of uh, the city. When he's described as a, a sort of Wolf of Wall Street character, I think in this case, obviously that term has been used again and again and again. But I think in this case, it was quite apposite. He did behave in uh, that particularly boorish, aggressive way where he considered that basically it was his empire, he could behave in any way he wanted to do. So in terms of the character, he, we've seen people like him uh, before. These boiler rooms 
that people set up where they're basically they have uh, you can imagine him goading the uh, salesman to rip off more and more people uh, these sort of frauds not are not uncommon Anthony Constantino was operating yards from where we're now sat five blocks up at Heron Tower 40 floors high Heron Tower is one of the City of London's most prestigious business addresses, casting a long afternoon shadow over Liverpool Street Station. At the time, Constantino was still in his early 30s. Over just a couple of years, £70 million of other people's money flowed into his bank account. Because of this feat of deception, and just as much because of the way he spent that money, some have dubbed him the Wolf of Bond Street, or even the Wolf of Liverpool Street. Others haven't been so kind. I mean, is that a common fraud? Is that the sort of thing that you see a lot of? Yeah, I mean, it's one of the bigger ones. I think all these cases that are being heard at Southwark Crown Court for the last two decades or so, um, probably half the, half the courts there are given up to this kind of fraud. I, I think they run in a, in a myriad ways. I think they're basically they're cold-calling investment scams. Constantino seems to have inspired a manic devotion in most of his staff. He staged wild parties for his employees, sushi platters, endless champagne, and the various chemical pick-me-ups of city boy life. As the court would later hear, he often drank vodka throughout the working day. And in 2016, he was prosecuted for a range of sexual assaults in the workplace. Some of these charges stemmed from a moment at one of these legendary company parties when he force-fed a female employee burning hot wasabi. While his fraud trial had only wrapped up this summer, it had taken an awfully long time to get before a judge. Its origins lay as far back as 2014. No one who had covered that end of the case was still working for court news, so Scott told me I should speak to the City of London police. Soon enough, they'd invited me up to their headquarters, another block over from the Old Bailey, at Guildhall. My name is Simon Cordell. My title now is Police Staff Investigator, but I'm a retired Detective Constable of City of London Police. Simon Cordell had a kind of younger Alan Sugar look to him. Slick back, salt and pepper hair, neat five o'clock shadow, gold chain discreetly tucked into his light blue shirt. Simon had been working on the case for eight years, so long in fact that he'd retired halfway through. But he'd come out of retirement to get his man. I mean, you've spent a lot of time pursuing him one way or another. What kind of a person was he to you? I know I probably never really met the true Anthony Constantino. I mean, when, when we had any personal dealings, he was pleasant enough. He didn't sort of give too much away. But my understanding is in the workplace, he could be a bit of a tyrant. He could be a bit of a bully. He could shout and bawl at people in the middle of a busy office and not think twice about threatening the sack it was his way or, or no way there was there was very little uh, negotiation with him and, and certainly some of the witnesses in the case said that you know if he didn't if he didn't like what he was hearing he'd walk out of meetings he'd, he'd often be drunk in the office you hear all of that and you think why would people part him with their money so there must have been a sort of a, a clever man behind it that could say the right things at the right time the investors probably didn't see the side of him that I've just described. And also, I would say that it's it's all financial. You know, if you if you are on the face of it, a very generous and, and rewarding person that buys favour. And I think sadly, work the workforce and also some of the investors were, were led by the financial returns and not perhaps 
the personality of the man himself. How does a man like that get started in that game? I mean, he had offices in, in Heron Towers. He's probably had to put some of his own money in to begin with. He's he's moved offices as well. So he's worked his way from a, a, a sort of, perhaps not quite a sort of prestigious office to begin with. As capital starts coming in and... Um, the personal recommendations, sort of private invitations, sort of domino effect that kicks in. Um, yeah, I'm sure that he, one of the first things he did with the money was secure a prestigious office, Heron Tower. It adds to the illusion that it's a successful business. Somewhere in the background, Constantino had some money of his own, but he also had another head start when it came to projecting his mirage, his ancestry. His father was a man called Aristos Constantinou. Aristos was the fashion magnate, a Cypriot incomer who'd ended up in London in the swinging 60s. Aristos had started out in the Carnaby Street rag trade, making cocktail gowns and casino wear. Later, he expanded to Duke Street, then Oxford Street, and then ever upwards. From Marleybone, his business grew out to Chicago, and from thence to Lausanne. His boutique, Ariella Chain, still exists to this day. For Mr. and Mrs. Constantino, for a while, life seemed perfect. They lived on the Bishop's Avenue, London's most exclusive street. A ribbon of vast mansions in Highgate, often called the Billionaire's Row. Until, in the early hours of New Year's Day, 1985, still only 40 years old, Aristos and his wife were coming back from a New Year's Eve party. Today's ceremony at St Mary's Greek Orthodox Church was attended by hundreds of mourners. The grief of Mr Constantinou's mother, his wife Elena and his close-knit family was obvious. Plainclothes CID men were present among those in the church looking for anyone or anything that might help them solve the mystery surrounding his murder. Elena Constantinou had brought a single red rose from her and one from each of her three children to drop into the grave. Aristos was shot dead with six bullets silver bullets. A fashion tycoon slain in a hit job on London's most exclusive address. Inevitably, the case became known in the tabloids as the silver bullets murder. For a while, Aristos's wife, Elena, was a suspect. She had been a 17-year-old shop girl blessed with Audrey Hepburn looks when Aristos had swept her out of his business and into his life. But by the time they set off for the party, their marriage had become sour and tetchy. Apparently, Elena had been having an affair with another of Aristos's shop managers. Achilles, Aristos's brother and business partner, has always believed that he was planning to divorce her. The case was never solved. In fact, it remains one of the Met's great white whales, and, accordingly, it's gone down in London criminal history. Often, when some shard of fresh evidence comes to light, it's dredged up all over again by the papers. Often, Elena is put back in the frame. In 1997, she appears to have narrowly avoided prosecution. Father dead, mother a suspect. I wondered if Simon Cordell had any idea what that might have done to a young Anthony. You know, I can't imagine what it must be like to be three years old and your father gets shot dead. And he obviously idolised his father and you can see that he sort of, there was expenditure on anniversaries of his father's death and stuff that we we see is, is some of the money that's spent. So he obviously looked up to his father and, yeah, it must be difficult for him. Later, he would take on his father's mantle in more practical ways, letting potential investors assume he was the scion of that fashion dynasty. 
which again we would say is not true we would say that that was basically a company that was continued by the, his late father's brother so his uncle and we saw no evidence that he suddenly inherited this huge fortune so yeah so you could argue that that was in poor taste if he was using that as part of his backstory if you like to investors which he certainly did it sounds like there, there is a sort of a, a social psychological archetype of these kind of guys you know i mean he seems like he was too clever by precisely half and in the end it was always going to catch up with him but there's a kind of an arrogance under there i mean is that that's the thing that you see time and again I, th I think there is. I think, first of all, they have no conscience, so they don't worry at all, whereas you and I would, would worry about owing someone a pound for their sandwich. These people will... I mean, his argument was he was doing this to share his, his wealth with, with others. You know, it was almost the complete opposite. Inside the business, Constantino had hired a bunch of fake city types. These were often fresh out of college. They'd often failed to get into finance by more legitimate means. And so, for them, this was their last best shot. After the crypto exchange FTX exploded last year, we learned of how its CEO, Sam Bankman-Fried, tended to place easily malleable souls around him. People who wouldn't ask too many questions. Constantino used the same trick. He employed third stringers, the wannabes, and shoved them into the C-suite. Take Sarah Tien, for example, the company's chief financial officer. She studied at the lowly University of Loughborough. Her only previous role of any significance was a one-year placement at PricewaterhouseCoopers in something called the International Assignment Service. A director of the business, the 31-year-old South African Craig Drosty, was a former yacht captain. Or at least, he was a former relief yacht captain. There's no evidence he ever made the jump to full-time captaincy. Day to day, it's easy enough to believe that some of these people had no idea what was going on up the chain. As Simon Cordell pointed out, fraudsters will often deliberately silo their employees as much as their victims. They make sure that no one has all of the pieces of the puzzle. There were traders who traded and salesmen who sold. It's just that these bits of the operation lost money. Neither was driving the business forward. Yeah, I think they were all probably um, people that had very limited sort of trading experience. And for them, it was a perfect opportunity to suddenly have this lucrative sort of position in the city. The, the wages were probably more generous than, say, other companies. And they probably saw it as a fantastic sort of um, opportunity for them and almost admitted themselves that they had so much to learn you know there was a lot of comments it was it was almost run like a cult I mean it was it, when you saw some of the phone sort of communications Mr Constantine would on a daily basis say how great he was and, and everyone by return said how great he was and how much they you know and there, there was people saying um, you know it, They'd almost sort of like didn't want to have holiday because they enjoyed working for him so much and they learned so much from him and it all fed into his ego and, and the sort of type of man he was and, and they obviously were happy to, to play that role because again, coming back to the basics of financial returns, they were getting paid well for, for doing what he asked of them. His company, CWM, Capital World Markets, was ostensibly a foreign exchange trading firm at one point, they broadcast their own daily market reports on YouTube, starring the boat captain, Craig Drosty. 
Hello, good afternoon, and welcome to the CWFX Market Report, coming to you directly from the Heron Tower, today the 6th of November 2014. The, the company operated a customer support for people trading their own funds, what's called retail trading. So they have a small trading account, it's on a platform, and the suspect company was, was almost providing a customer service. Next, CWM branched into trading seminars. Lowly salesfolk would reach out to their contacts, many of them already people on the platform. Do you want to know how to trade better, they'd ask? How to get good at it? Trade like the pros. Come along. No obligation. The first seminars were often free or delivered at a knockdown price. That built trust. It got people into the marketing funnel. And as the relationship built, you'd gradually be asked to put some of your money into an actively managed account, where instead of you trading, CWM will be trading on your behalf. And soon enough, you'd be introduced to a more senior account manager. These guys wanted to know a lot more about you. They wanted to feel you out. What were your financial dreams? What did you actually want from life? If they felt they had the measure of you, in short order, you'd be taken behind the curtain and offered a unique opportunity. Had you heard, they'd whisper, about the special fund. 5% returns a month, risk-free. That's right, 5% a month, not a year. So... 60% a year, in fact. In two years, you'd more than double your money. But the thing about the special fund was, you had to go big. This wasn't one for your mom and pop investors. You had to prove to them that you were a player, someone who was serious about securing their financial future. Minimum spend? £50,000. Of course, if you didn't have that sort of money, if you weren't a serious player, you could always walk away. Once that got up and running, it, it just spread like wildfire. I, I mean, it's incredible. There was introducers around the country all sort of selling this product. So we had investors around the country all signing up to the product. And once people were getting their returns and see, thinking that that was a, a, a sign that the case, that the investment was genuine, you obviously had other friends and family, the old FOMO effect of, fear of missing out, thinking, cripes, that, that seems too good to be true, but they're getting their money back. So so friends and family, and you can see with some of the victims that it's caused a massive split with, with people that now are, are sort of almost blaming the first person that encouraged them to invest as the reason why they've lost as well, because it was their personal recommendation. So, so yeah, so, and none of these people's sophisticated investors or very few, you know, even though it was a, a massive minimum entry level, these people were literally investing their life savings and retirement sort of pots to, to try and make a passive income. So it is sadly left a lot of people in, in a very bad place. The wealth that now poured in through the front door of Heron Towers drained away just as quickly into Anthony Constantini's narcissistic upkeep. One fascinating nugget to come out of the earliest phase of his success was that he'd gone back to his childhood. He too now had a house on the Bishop's Avenue. Except, after 30 years, even billionaires were finding it a bit tight. The house was costing him £50,000 a month just to rent. £600,000 a year. Having begun softly, shading the difference between legitimate and illegitimate, as the scheme expands, more and more names go on the list. Soon enough, the network effect means they no longer need all of that hard sell. But Constantino still isn't satisfied. 
Rather than hang on to the last shreds of caution, now he sees an opportunity to gouge even more, even faster. He doubles the entry point to the special fund, from 50,000 to 100,000. Mr. Constantinou makes a flippant comment to one person who's trying to pay less, I think 80,000, almost dismissive of sort of saying, I don't need your money. You know, I've got all these huge investors and you're just small fry. So, so almost sort of belittling this person that then goes away and gets other family members to top up the sum to make it sort of up to the level required. But yeah, I think on the whole, it's £100,000. And, and there's obviously some that have invested a lot more. There's a few on record that have invested six figures, you know, a million pounds um, plus. One chap sold a care home business, invested all of that as his sort of retirement plan and he's, he's lost a lot. Another woman had cancer. She got an insurance payout of around £250,000. But rather than pay off her mother's mortgage as she'd initially wanted to with the money, she was encouraged to stick it all into the scheme. Word of mouth travels erratically. That means that the special fund could find itself taking over whole communities. For instance, the Gurkhas took a bad hit. Gurkhas are Nepalese soldiers who'd served in their own unique regiment in the British Army. Many of them had been granted the right to settle in England. Most of those that did lived in the military town of Aldershot. In a small, tight-knit community like that, news of sudden windfalls spreads fast. By rights, those kinds of big returns should generate big suspicions, but the critics could hardly get going. Constantinus saw to it that they were ruthlessly crushed. A few sceptical souls did ask questions in a forum called Trade to Win. There, a poster called Delta Trader 12 wrote, I worked at CWM as an employee for literally a couple of days and resigned in disgust after I witnessed the misrepresentation, misleading statements and high-pressure sales tactics. Another poster on the thread spoke about how CWM was soliciting for asset management business outside of their license. They mentioned the off-the-record fund, but the company was actively monitoring dissent. They took the classic libel route, using expensive lawyers to jet off terse letters, shooting down anyone who speculated about the true nature of their business. Trade to Win took the safe option. Within days, both the original post and its response have been deleted. The website's concern just took the, the safe option and removed those, those entries. For a while, Constantino could live the life he somehow imagined he deserved. Every miserable, unimaginative cliché of it. He spent £70,000 on his baby's first birthday. And the goodie bags that the kids turned up and got must have been incredible. Um, but yeah, I mean, that's extravagant to say the least for, for a child that's not even going to know what's going on. I think, I think the most obvious one, which um, uh, obviously was handled by what I would class as a, a sort of top, top level party organiser based in Knightsbridge, who probably only deal in the rich and famous clients, they oversaw his wedding in Santorini, which was a staggering £2.3 million, all of it paid for from investors' funds. There was not a suggestion that... He'd funded any of it himself. You can see the payments come from the accounts where the investor funds go in. And it was borderline ridiculous. His request included having a, a, a whole wedding venue built from scratch on a disused tomato plant. 
all his guests were flown in private jets, all put up in five-star hotels, top of the range food, champagne. There was even sort of celebrity singers from Greece that were booked to perform. The event then had to get moved because the weather was dubious on the day of the event. And so he, he basically sanctioned it all getting moved at a, another cost. So, it, you know, I mean, £2.3 million when you know it's not your money is showing absolutely no consideration for, for what he's, you know, up to, really. What people have to remember is with, with a Ponzi fraud, a lot of the money's being burnt as the fraud continues. So I think on, on the, um, the stats, 40% of the money that, that goes in goes back out again as returns and commissions. So so half the pot's nearly gone anyway. And if there's no genuine income coming in at the, the sort of back end, that money's just sort of hemorrhaging out. So so you've got you've got to factor in the fact that the, all the returns going out, all the costs of the of the business, because it's as we've discussed with the rent, the staffing costs, the the computer, the IT, you know, all of that in a city, huge sums. Don't even get me started on sponsorship deals, which we might come on to. Millions of pounds wasted on that. Some of the rest of the money was reinvested in laundering the brand. Chelsea Football Club made CWM their official foreign exchange partner. The company sponsored its own MotoGP team, LCR Honda, and Constantino spent nearly half a million pounds on private jets for him and his entourage to follow them around Europe. CWM even became the title sponsors of the London Boat Show. At the CWMFX London Boat Show, we wanted to create some new experiences which fitted in with a new theme, and we needed to do something different, totally unlike anything that's been seen at boat shows before. And it's created a real stir. That emotional stir uh, has been fantastic, it really has. There are some incredible pictures online of Constantino meeting Princess Anne, who was the event patron. So, so sadly, when we went through the doors in March 2015, there was very little left of the 70 million that we think has been lost in this case. So take me back to the first moment that Constantino flickers onto the City of London police radar. Like, when do the dials start moving? When we had a whistleblower. With, with a case like this, it's not obvious that there's a fraud. You know, you, it takes some of the, the victims, it takes some convincing that there's a fraud. They're getting their returns, what they're seeing um, all seems presentable. They, they obviously ask the questions and, and get the right answers back. But someone working within the company um, had their concerns and raised those concerns to us. Bearing in mind, you've got a big, on the face of it, bold company sitting in Heron Tower with all these fancy sponsorship deals and workforce we have to sort of manage the risk element of what we do next, because obviously we could be sued if we close a successful ongoing operation down without good reason. So, so yeah, so a whistleblower comes forward, we have to scope it and scope it quick. Behind the sort of company itself, you look at some of the basics and it starts to raise alarm bells. The company only incorporated in October 13. So this company has grown massively in 18 months. Well, less than 18 months at that point. That, that's very fast. You look at the workforce, we did checks on all the workforce. None of them have got a financial background. That's strange. 
you look at Mr. Constantinou, the previous trading company he worked for had an FCA alert against them. So again, and, and you look at the numbers and you think none of this quite makes sense how all of a sudden it's so successful sponsoring all these big sporting events. Coupled with the whistleblowers, so then you, you move on and you, you go and approach a couple of investors um, to get the sort of facts behind the investment model. And obviously we did that. There's always a risk they could compromise your, your investigation. Thankfully, they didn't. And I think that was that was enough for us. And we got warrants and went through the doors in March, which was two, three months after the sort of first report to us. So, that's so you very much go through the doors. I'm, I'm, I'm imagining a kind of a scrum of policemen yes. moving through a building. We did. I mean, the, the, the operation was huge. We did the offices. We did the home addresses of all the workforce that we identified. We arrested I think on the day 13 key nominals that we'd identified. Um, they were all taken to different stations, they were all interviewed. And I think we did catch them with their pants down, I'll, I'll be honest. There was stuff on the computer screens whilst we were doing the search that were clearly showing things that weren't right. Obviously the digital reviews that followed, we found some very damning evidence. Um, they hadn't had chance to clear the deck, shall we say. Um, and obviously, I think that that proved in the fact that the defendant, by his own admission, accepted there was a fraud at trial. So you arrested 13 people on the day. How many of those people were ultimately prosecuted? Um, sadly, only one. <laughs> um, but, but I mean, to be fair, you, I, I say 13. In effect, we interviewed 59 suspects over the duration of the five years it was investigated. So we started with the, the main guys on the day. We then interviewed what I would class as a second tier of staff. We interviewed some of the introducers, 59 people in total. We then sought charging advice, I think, on 12. So we, there was 12 that we put forward to CPS. And I think it, it's fair to say Mr. Constantinou was the man running the, the, everything from the top and everyone else had their role, but it was probably in silo of everyone else's role. And did they all know what he was ultimately doing? Probably not. It, it seems to me that he, he probably didn't act alone. It, well, he, he couldn't act alone. He, and, and I think if you're, if you're a clever fraudster, you get everyone else to do the sort of donkey work for you. Um, but clearly... Um, if you're selling a product and that product has been explained to you by Mr. Constantinou, that person's argument is going to be, well, I was only selling what I was told. And Mr. Constantinou ultimately controlled all the purse strings. You know, he had, he had control over all the bank accounts. Um, so everyone had their role, but no one quite knew the full picture as opposed to him. So, and he did try and blame other people at trial. He tried to blame the two people below him. Um, and that was effectively his defence was they were doing the the crime without his knowledge. But the financials just didn't support that argument. You know, he was the one making the, the, the obviously the huge um, returns, the personal sort of expenditure, all the VIP sort of trappings of the lifestyle. 
um, I don't think you could sort of see that that was going on for anyone. And you could sort of see in the communications that they all worshipped the ground he stood on and, and answered to him. He was the man in charge for sure. I mean, people like me and the public, we, we read of these things and there's there's almost sort of a titillation in the, the man with his three Bentleys and his £600,000 a year rental house on the Bishop's Avenue. But you've had to trawl through all of this line by line and you've you've met the victims. I mean, what do you think when you sort of see all these expense uh, receipts for his extravagant lifestyle? I mean, it's the complete opposite of me as a person because I, I'm just so unmaterialistic, it's untrue. And, and, and so I find, you know, all of the frauds that you deal with, they've all got pictures of Rolex watches and, and gold-plated Ferraris on their desk, almost as, a, as an inspiration of what's important in life. And yet, sadly, I, I understand everyone needs money to survive and stuff. But when you, when you want to, to be rich and powerful just to sort of make you a better person it just it sort of adds further motivation and inspiration to me to do my job properly because you just know that they just are doing it with the complete callousness of of knowing that they're destroying obviously all the innocent people that are handing over their money to him and he you know even even when it came to the sort of the the, the post-police raids, he's still promising to pay everyone their money back. He knows that he spent the money, he knows that it's gone, and he's still alluding to the fact that it's all still safely there and it's only the police that's stopping them getting it back. So not only is he taking their money and spent it, he's then just lying to them a second time round. You can't make it personal, but um, fraud people are, sadly have the worst human characteristics that you could come across. Tell me about your own life in the in the fraud squad. So I, I've been doing fraud 20 years now, so I'm probably, sadly, either very old or, or probably one of the longest serving fraud detectives here. I, I love fraud. I, I, I find, I, I think, when you become a detective, and don't get me wrong, I, I worked in CID before I joined fraud, so I transferred in. And I'd worked on murders, rapes, serious crime and I transferred to fraud and everyone was saying to me you're going to find it really boring you're going to find it really slow but actually I think I've slightly got OCD anyway and there's nothing more rewarding than sitting in court in a trial where you've slaved over a case for three four years or however long it's taken and you then see top counsel in either the Old Bailey or Southwark fighting over all your evidence and preparation and if you get the reward and justice for the victims, it's it's the pinnacle of what being a detective is all about. I mean, where does this rank in terms of the, the cases that you've covered? I think it's been the hardest. I'm not going to lie. I think he's, he's obviously, it's been a very tough uh, sort of process to trial. And it's obviously had its ups and downs. You know, every, every case is different. But yeah, I, I think... I think given the fact I came back and I came back and it could have gone horribly wrong. You could, I could have gone back and if the case had not gone well, I would have thought I could have walked away, retired, and it would have been someone else's sort of watch that it sort of didn't go well on. So, so there was a lot riding on it, I think, for, for me personally. Um, the fact it's gone okay, apart from sort of him absconding, 
yeah, I suppose it's a nice closure for me. I've I've now, I'm not going to lie, I've handed my notice in. I came back purely to see this case through. And now this case is through and the confiscation sort of underway. Um, I'm going to call time on it. And that is me sort of done. So it's, it's, it's quite sort of poignant for me as well. I'd liked Simon a lot. He was a dedicated toiler, now long overdue his post-police life. But there was one thing in what he'd said that had felt especially poignant. The fact it's gone okay apart from sort of him absconding. Apart from him absconding. The trial had taken eight weeks. It had taken Simon and his team seven years on and off to prepare it. But at the start, Constantino had been granted bail of £100,000. Basic precautions had been taken. He'd been made to wear an electronic tag, his passport had been seized, and initially, of course, he turned up every day to sit in the dock. Until, one day, in the third week, he didn't. Here, the City of London police weren't too keen to talk about the details of how and why. They worried it might give too much sucker to others in a similar situation. It seemed tragic, pathetic, terrible, that after all that, he'd just sawn off his tag and done a moonlight flit. So I went back to see Scott to get his thoughts. And there'd obviously um, eyebrows raised because he was on bail, despite his history. Uh, City of London police put out a, an appeal for him with, with a picture, and he's still on the run. He's obviously very well connected, extremely wealthy man. Police are still looking for him. But I think, yeah, someone's made a pretty grievous error bailing him in the first place. He applied for bail, as far as I'm aware, during the trial. One can only imagine uh, the reaction of uh, the good people of City of London Police if they were sitting uh, at the back of the court when he was granted bail. Because when we have bail applications, a judge will often take into consideration whether or not the person has connections uh, with foreign countries which would make it easier for them to abscond to a foreign country. And in this case, I think the clue was the name Constantinou. And it was obvious, surely, that as soon as he was granted bail, Constantinou was going to vanish. He had plenty of money. He had the connections with a foreign country. He wasn't going to stick around. In Constantinou's absence, the Crown Prosecution Service had to put in a special motion for the trial to be continued. They did. They won and he was convicted and sentenced to 14 years in prison. If and when he's ever recovered, he'll be sentenced to extra time for absconding. For now, at least, he has a bonus ball in the lottery of life. Or rather, he has yet another bonus ball, because in June, he was stopped at the Bulgarian-Turkish border, travelling on a fake Spanish passport. And for a moment, Simon and the City of London police celebrated. But then, more news came in. He'd been let go. The exact circumstances around this event are still unclear. Personally, I don't think they'll ever find him. I really don't. I hope that I'm proved wrong. I hope as well, for the sake of the, some of those officers from City of London Police, that I am proved wrong and he is found and brought back here. But um, somehow I doubt it. There's an incident at the Bulgarian-Turkish border where he is briefly held and then somehow let go. Well, I can't imagine what would have happened there. Um, I think basically a quick phone call from solicitor 
offer of uh, how can I say two hundred thousand pounds in pesos or whatever. I think money's changed hands myself. It's more more than likely. A, a quick search on the internet would have revealed how wanted this bloke is. So um, something dodgy's happened. But there you go. What do you think drives a guy like that? Money. These people, they, they're not really, when, when, they, when you hear Nat King Cole uh, singing Love Is The Thing, I think these, these people, I think that message is somewhat lost upon them. They only see life in terms of material gain, where they live, how much their house is worth, how many cars they drive, how much money they threw over the, over the to over the casino, how much what top restaurants they go to, all this sort of thing. It's just everything is seen in terms of cash and nothing else. He's just a thoroughly nasty character and also quite grossly overweight as well. Fresh from the Old Bailey is produced by me, Gavin Haynes in partnership with Court News UK. Sound mix by Jonathan Webb. You can follow us on Twitter. Court News also has an excellent weekly substack with the podcast Killers of the Old Bailey, featuring Britain's most experienced murder case reporter, Granwell Gray. The British legal system makes it hard to contact those involved, so if you have personal knowledge of aspects of the Constantino case or other cases we've covered, contact us through our Gmail, freshfromtheoldbailey at gmail.com. Discretion assured.